Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Bob McDonald. Welcome to Quirks and Quarks. On this week's show, the last days of the largest ape ever. Why Gigantopithecus went extinct. It has been a mystery, and, and, and a lot of paleontologists will say that it's the holy grail of paleontology because there is so much mystery surrounding this species. And understanding PTSD in the brain, why traumatic memories are so disturbing. It's as if it's happening now, and it's not a regular memory. It's not something that belongs to the past. Plus, history slips paleontologists some skin, what octopuses can tell us about the future of Antarctica, and hope, hype, and hydrogen, a solution to climate change or a lot of light air. All this today on Quirks and Quarks. For nearly two million years, giant apes roamed the area that is now southern China. Standing twice as tall as the average human and weighing three times as much, the Gigantopithecus blackie must have truly been a sight to see. Except early humans never likely got to lay their eyes on these gigantic apes because they went extinct before our ancestors arrived in the area. Exactly how these impressive creatures met their demise has been a huge mystery for paleontologists, especially because other apes, like orangutans, were able to thrive at the time. Now, a massive study involving thousands of teeth and a handful of jaw bones is helping to shed light on just what happened to these giants. Dr. Kira Westaway is a geochronologist at Macquarie University in Australia. She co-led the study. Dr. Westaway, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Hello, thank you for having me. Now, before your study, what did we know about this giant ape? Well, it has been a mystery, and, and, and a lot of paleontologists will say that it's the holy grail of paleontology because there is so much mystery surrounding this species, mainly because we only know it from teeth, a few thousand teeth, but still only just teeth, um, and uh, four pieces of jawbone. So it has been a bit of a mystery. The first ever Gigantopithecus tooth was found in a drugstore in Hong Kong in the 1930s. Um, and it was sold as a dragon tooth, um, which is very interesting. And a um, German paleontologist found it um, and he uh, named it Gigantopithecus blackie because he knew it was a primate. For a while, we thought it might be sort of more like a gorilla. But a recent uh, study on paleoproteins or um, ancient proteins tells us that it was actually in the orangutan family. So it's a very, very early offshoot of a modern day orangutan. If all you have are teeth and a little bit of a jaw, how did you know it was gigantic? Well, unfortunately, on radio, I can't show you the, the reconstruction that I have, but the teeth are enormous. Um, they are really massive teeth. And when you have a full set of these teeth and, and you reconstruct what the jawbone would have looked like, you get an idea of how big uh, this ape really was. Well, take me through your study. How did you start to piece together what happened to this giant ape? 
So we knew that if we were going to try and determine what causes extinction, we knew that the starting point was dating. We knew we had to know exactly when the ape went extinct. So we excavated hundreds of caves, but we focused on 22 caves for this study. And we applied six dating techniques, which is a lot. <laughs> and we ended up with 157 radiometric ages to try and pinpoint exactly when the ape went extinct or went disappeared from the fossil record. And from that, we were to determine that from 295 to 215,000 years ago was what we call the window of extinction. So it definitely went extinct during that period. Now, now, just to make it clear, you say you, you studied caves. So were you dating the environment that they lived in or were you dating the teeth that were found in the caves? So when we go about the dating, um, it's very important to date the teeth, what we call in context. So, you know, uh, sorry, in situ, which is basically found with exactly where it was found in the sediments. And I do a dating technique called luminescence dating. And that allows me to date uh, the sediment, but not the age of the sediment. It tells me when the sediment um, was last exposed to sunlight before it entered the cave and buried the fossil. So we can date the sediments and we can also date the fossils. Wow. So the caves become time capsules. <laughs> Literally time capsules. And not only do they preserve all this evidence, they provide us with lots of amazing materials that we can actually date to, to help us give us chronology for the evidence. So paint me a picture then. What was the environment like when this giant ape was doing well compared to when it went extinct? Yeah, so we know that Gigantopithecus was around from at least around 2 million years ago in China. Uh, and and we, from the pollen analysis, we know that this was living in quite densely forested regions and also orangutans as well at the time they were living. And the early caves, we have hundreds of giganto teeth. We're not just talking a few. There's hundreds of them, um, just showing that the populations were really thriving. And then around 700 to 600,000 years ago, we started start to see some environmental changes. And what we see is that there was a strengthening of the seasons. So we get a very pronounced wet season and dry season. And prior to that, it had, there had been no seasons. So it's a real change in the sort of environmental conditions. But that was enough to really throw Gigantopithecus because it was very much a specialist habitat dweller and a specialist eater. It likes to eat fruit. Now, because of this pronounced dry season, we're now moving into periods of time where there's a fruit scarcity. So these primates have to go back to what we call their fallback food. So the food that they eat um, when they can't get their food preferences. Now, Giganto's um, fallback food was a very um, less nutritious option. So he was eating very fibrous foods like um, the bark from trees and twigs on the floor and, and that kind of thing. In comparison, orangutan chose a much more nutritious and more flexible um, fallback food because it was up in the top canopy. It could eat shoots and, and little uh, baby leaves and um, flowers and sometimes insects, sometimes even small mammals. So it was much more flexible in, in the fallback food that it could eat when it couldn't get fruit. So with this extinction, it's not so much the environmental change. It's more how the species responded to those changes. So besides not adapting to the change in food source, was its size a disadvantage being so big? 
Definitely. I mean, it, early on, it chose an evolutionary path, which was great at two million years ago, being large and 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 there was plentiful food supplies. But when we start to see these envir- uh, these environmental changes around six hundred thousand, we can start to see that Giganto starts to struggle, and its range for foraging was greatly reduced by its size. I mean, it really wasn't very mobile compared to orangutan, who were much more mobile. They could, you know, brachiate. They could swing through the trees and and cover a much wider area to try and get the fallback foods that it needed to survive. So do you have a sense of what Gigantopithecus was going through as it got closer to the point of extinction? Yeah, that's interesting because we looked at the texture of the teeth. So looking at pits and scratches on the teeth to give us an indication of what they were eating and comparing that between 2 million and um, right at the point of extinction. We also looked at the insides of the teeth and looked at how trace elements such as barium and calcium and strontium were laid down in the teeth. And that gives us a really, really clear picture of how they were responding to these environmental changes. So at 2 million years, we see very, very pronounced colourful banding within the teeth of these trace elements, showing a very diverse range of food that they were eating and very healthy population that were thriving. And then close to the extinction window, the teeth show us a very different story. The trace elements are very diffusely laid down. There's not very clear banding at all, showing a really reduction in the diversity of food that they were eating. And the other thing we can see from that is that they were under chronic stress. Um, so the stress really does show up in, in, in your signatures, in your teeth. Did that stress affect their size? Well, it did, but in not in the way that we would expect. <laughs> because what happens during this period is that they start to get larger. Now, they're already very large and they're already not particularly mobile and already not really getting the food supplies they need. So there's really no explanation for why they would suddenly get larger in size. The only thing I can think of is that stress does play um, a, a quite a, a, um, a havoc on biological systems. We know in humans that stress can induce cancers and things like that. And I'm just wondering whether or not this, you know, chronic stress over generations um, would have played havoc with their evolutionary systems. And they start to get larger when obviously that would not have been a good uh, tactic. <laughs> get larger, yeah, while they're going extinct. Yeah. I mean, were you surprised by that? Yeah, very much. And and the orangutans we see, they are, do get smaller, they get more agile, um, and then Giganto just completely goes the wrong way, um, which is very strange. Well, based on what you found about this ancient giant ape, what does that tell us about ape extinctions that are happening today? Yeah, this has great implications for understanding how much, you know, how primates respond to environmental stresses and what makes certain primates uh, more resilient and what makes them more vulnerable. And, you know, with this constant threat of a sixth mass extinction event, you know, if you look back over geological time, we've had five mass extinction events over millennia. And um, the thought of going into a sixth mass extinction event makes it really crucial to understand how primates do respond to these environmental stresses. Dr. Westaway, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Dr. Kira Westaway is a geochronologist at Macquarie University in Australia. Post-traumatic stress disorder is characterized by intrusive thoughts that can cause people to re-experience historic trauma. These unwanted memories surface in upsetting ways, 
and can cause nightmares and flashbacks, leading to emotional distress or a powerful physical reaction. Essentially, these memories feel different, as if the trauma never left. But what hasn't been clear is if they are different in the brain from an ordinary negative or sad memory. Now a new study is suggesting that they are, and this could bode well for PTSD therapy. Dr. Daniela Schiller is the senior author of that study. She's a professor of neuroscience and psychiatry at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. Hello, Dr. Schiller. Welcome to our program. Hello. Thank you for having me. Why is it important to understand how our brains respond to traumatic memories? It helps us understand the underlying mechanism, what gives rise to these experiences and offers us a path for treatment. Well, how did you go about figuring out what's happening in a person's brain when someone with PTSD recalls a traumatic memory? Uh, what we did is uh, we tried to target something that uh, is very difficult to test in the lab, actually. And this is the people's uh, personal memories, their individual memories. Usually when we study PTSD, we do experiments in the lab. So we create an emotional experience, like being afraid from a certain cue that appears on the computer and so forth. This has been informative in teaching us on basic mechanisms of emotional learning and memory. Uh, but nothing really about the personal, really individual, real-life experience. So what we did is um, invited people who were diagnosed with PTSD and asked them to tell us about their traumatic memory as well as a sad memory that is not traumatic and also something relaxing, a calming memory. They talked to a clinician who interviewed them. And then the clinician turned these memories into a script that was recorded and then played to these participants in the fMRI scanner. This is what we use to scan their brain. And in this way, we could measure what is happening in their brain while they listen to the recordings that describe their own memories, and that serves to reactivate that memory. Okay, so we've got the three different kinds of memory, the traumatic memory, a sad memory, and then one that's sort of, I guess, neutral. Uh, what did you see happening in their brains when these three different types of memories were played back to them? When they heard the sad memory, we saw something that was expected, which is activation in the hippocampus. Hippocampus is a region in the brain that is critical for memory. If you don't have an intact hippocampus, you would not be able to form long-term memories. Uh, so that is the region that became active and tracked the, the content of these sad memories across participants. But this wasn't the case when participants listened to their own traumatic memory. It didn't seem to engage the hippocampus. Instead, it engaged a different region, which is at the back of the brain. It is called posterior cingulate cortex. It's part of a system that is um, typically called the default mode network. This is a system that is activated when you just have internal thoughts, uh, like mind wandering, daydreaming, just like self-introspection and so forth. Internal thoughts or mental actions that are in the present, but are not memories as such. So when you look at PTSD symptoms and people's experiences, people do report that they feel differently. So 
in a way it was um, reassuring to see that it's an alternative way of representation, which I think resonated with many people's experiences. Mm-hmm. Well, if the person with PTSD is uh, having a different response in the brain, a different part of the brain, what does that tell you about what they're actually experiencing when they recall that memory? It seems that what the experience is being in the present moment. When you recall a memory, you know it's a memory. You know that it's uh, distant from you, it's separate from you, it's in a certain time and space that is not now, and you know that, and you can kind of reflect on that content. But a present experience is something that uh, you feel is happening now. It's not distant from you, you're not removed from it. And if it's a very negative uh, experience, then it will feel negative in the present and you will react to it as if it's happening now. Oh, so they're actually reliving it in a way. In a way, yes. So could this uh, elicit the kind of response where a person with PTSD, if they hear a loud bang, they might instantly respond to that and, and cower or go hide? Yes, exactly. This is what uh, they feel and... Uh, Some people tell me that it's hard for them to explain that this is what uh, the experience, because it's as if it's happening now, and it's not a regular memory. It's not something that belongs to the past. Ah, it's happening right now. So what then uh, could be done to transfer this traumatic memory to the hippocampus, the part that's usually involved in memories, and put it in the past? I think a lot of it is already being done. What this study suggests is a mechanism in the brain for it. Uh, I think many forms of therapy aim to reconstruct the memory, to turn it into a clear, coherent narrative, because traumatic memories are often fragmented. Uh, So you work on creating a coherent narrative, and then you work also on maybe rescripting, changing. This is about having control over that content and also being present with the memory such that it's tolerable because it's understood that it's it's not in the present. So this is what many therapies are geared toward. And that uh, finding that we have is consistent with that. It suggests that this should be the way. It just gives us also a measure because now we can see if before and after therapy, the memories are back in the hippocampus. Also, there might be in the future uh, ways to maybe stimulate the hippocampus. You know, I can envision all sorts of uh, more sophisticated uh, therapies if we gain more and more control on how we activate the brain. If the traumatic memories have a different neural representation in the brain, could looking in people's brains to see how they process their traumatic memories help identify those suffering from PTSD? I think it could help. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, variability sometimes in how people are diagnosed. It's also very dynamic. So this could give a measure that is uh, objective in a way. Well, what does this tell you about the nature of memory if it can become part of the solution to trauma? It's very interesting. You know, I was thinking that uh, we're often afraid of memories and we feel that memories are hunting us and memories can be bad. But what this study showed me is that it's actually good. You do want them to be memories because otherwise they continue being uh, your present experience. 
So something that belongs to the past, as negative as it is, is actually comforting. To be able to put it in the past and keep it in the past and remove it from the present. Yeah. You know, what's, what's good about the past is that it's in the past. <laughs> so that's where you want things to be. <laughs> Dr. Schiller, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Dr. Daniela Schiller is a professor of neuroscience and psychiatry at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. When the first vertebrate animals crawled out of the water, they had a problem to solve. There was this marvelous and expansive new habitat, dry land, but they were amphibians, built to be wet all the time. So one of the major adaptations to terrestrial life was a new kind of skin that could seal their inner wet bits away from the dry outer world. This, however, presents a problem for paleontologists trying to understand this transition. Skin doesn't often fossilize especially skin from several hundred million years ago. That's why a find described by Ethan Dean Mooney, a graduate student in paleontology at the University of Toronto, is so exciting. It's the oldest evidence of skin in the fossil record of terrestrial vertebrates. Mr. Mooney, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Thank you. So first of all, tell me about this preserved piece of skin. What's it look like? It's quite an impressive um, fossil. If you can picture a cobbled road, a very smooth cobbled road, that is very close to what the surface of this uh, the skin would have looked like. And it bears a very striking resemblance to the side scales of uh, crocodiles. How old is it? It's about 289 to 286 million years old. So that's about four and a half times older than the last dinosaurs. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. How is it found? Uh, it was found by um, local collectors Bill and Julie May, arguably the most prolific fossil hunter uh, in the region and has a, a great knowledge of uh, these fossils. So it was found in an active limestone quarry in Oklahoma. And so Bill would go down to the quarry after they've uh, freshly blasted out the rock faces and pick through the, the infilled cave sediments that the mine is not interested in. And that is where the fossils are. They're very dark black or dark brown contrast to the beige, uh, silty, muddy sediments uh, of, of, the, of the caves. Now, how big is the piece of preserved skin that you found? Our bit of mummified skin, so the skin cast, is about the size of your pinky fingernail or a bit less. Wow. Well, what can the skin sample tell you about the kind of animal this might have come from? So uh, our co-author, Tamaho uh, did something called histological sampling of, of the skin cast. So she cut it and then looked at it under a microscope um, and was able to reveal some very different uh, differentiation of the outermost layer of the skin, uh, particularly uh, those of cornifications, uh, which are a special type of keratin and a hallmark of reptiles. And it appears that some of the earliest um, reptiles and amniotes in general at this time uh, may have had a typical reptilian skin uh, that we know and love today. So it was a reptile. Do you have any idea what it might have looked like? We can maybe associate these isolated pieces of skin with uh, Captorhinus agouti because we do know that Captorhinus agouti was by far the most abundant animal at this locality. Uh, we have hundreds of thousands of bones 
at this locality, and the majority of which do come from this animal. So it was very widespread, and we know that it was uh, very reptilian-like. So, so what kind of reptile was it? Uh, picture a very lizard-like reptile, maybe 25 centimeters long, um, very chunky, stocky, I would describe it as, uh, and it has a very distinctive overbite at its uh, snout. When you saw this, uh, this skin sample for the first time, what went through your mind? Just wow. <laughs> the, imagining the chance and the, the sheer the sheer chance that this in the first place was preserved and then not destroyed over millions of years and then to be found is, is really something mind-boggling. Were there any bones found along with the skin? Unfortunately not. Uh, the nature of collection at the quarry involves um, oftentimes taking bulk buckets of the sediments and then dissolving the sediments in acetic acid, so slightly more acidic than vinegar, to really reveal these fossils. And also the nature of this cave system is such that a lot of the remains are disarticulated, and so that means they're, they're kind of uh, jumbled around and, and separated from one another. Now, skin is not usually fossilized very well, so how did this piece of skin manage to survive for so long? The cave system is, is quite interesting. Um, caves in themselves have been known to be quite good at preserving organic materials. And in this case, we have very fine sediments that buried this, this fossil rather quickly. And within the cave, there was very low oxygen or no oxygen. Um, and there's also a, a lot of uh, ion-rich, some mineral-rich groundwater uh, that was frequently infiltrating the system as well, which are great conditions for limiting or delaying uh, decay and uh, prolonging the structural integrity of these these organic materials and also for jump-starting fossilization. But Richard Spur is fascinating for its um, influence of hydrocarbons. Uh, so we know that Richard Spur was an active oil seep during the early Permian. And so petroleum and tar, uh, which can be referred to as hydrocarbons, uh, have interacted with these fossils permeating these structures, saturating them, encasing them uh, in a manner that has allowed for quite exceptional preservation. Wow, that's amazing. So, so does that mean they're black in color? Yeah, yeah. The, the, our skin fossils here are actually very, very jet black. <laughs> so what does this tell you about this uh, critical time in evolutionary history now that you have a skin sample from that long ago? The incredible transition between amphibians and reptiles and more broadly anamniotes to amniotes, uh, so amniotes right of the group encompassing reptiles, mammals, and birds today, uh, involves several novel anatomical innovations. Uh, most popular is the amniotic egg, uh, but also skin, the epidermis, the outermost layer of the skin, is exceptionally pivotal uh, in this transition as well and, and really critical for their success on land. Also, the thickening of this outer layer of skin was critical for um, acting as a protective barrier between the inside of the body and the out outside conditions, uh, but also for retaining water. Now, when you move on to land away from, uh, from water, you need to retain that water within your, with your body. You don't want to dry out. Well, it's one thing to see bones. Uh, what's it like when you see actual skin of an animal that lived you know, hundreds of millions of years ago? Skin and other soft tissues very rarely preserve in the fossil record. Most of our understanding and uh, examples of skin 
uh, come from impressions of the surface of these structures in the surrounding rocks. So the structure has long since degraded and all we're left with is an impression. So when we have uh, exceptional fossils that are of the structure itself, um, it's quite an exceptional opportunity to better understand these animals. Now, you're a young student. You're working on your master's degree. What's it like to be involved in this kind of study and make such a big discovery so early on? It's, it's unbelievable, really. It's, uh, it's surreal. And I feel very lucky and uh, very appreciative of, of uh, my situation here in the Rice Lab. Mr. Mooney, thank you so much for your time. A pleasure. Ethan Dean Mooney is a master's student at the University of Toronto. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts. I'm Bob McDonald, and you're listening to Quirks and Quarks on CBC Radio 1. Coming up later in the program, hope, hype, and hydrogen. Is there a world-changing amount of a clean, green fuel beneath our feet? The key thing is, is that in some of these systems, there really is a lot of this material available. So even if only a small fraction of it can be used... It could nonetheless be one of the important things that we can do to deal with the climate crisis. Trying to study the geological history of the planet can be a daunting task in any part of the world. But studying the history of Antarctica's giant ice sheets can be particularly challenging, in part because ice doesn't fossilize. So its history can just melt away in a flash. Researchers have been trying to figure out when the West Antarctic ice sheet last disappeared from the landscape, in part to know more about what conditions could cause such a collapse. Now, in a new study, scientists are using a unique tool to understand the ice sheet's history, the DNA of the unassuming Turkut octopus. And it turns out that a grave warning is embedded in that DNA. Dr. Sally Lau is a postdoctoral research fellow at James Cook University in Australia. She led the study. Dr. Lau, welcome to our program. Thanks for having me. Why did you want to use octopus DNA to learn about the history of the West Antarctic ice sheet? Yeah, so for many years, us biologists knew that the animals on the seafloor on the opposite sides of the West Antarctic ice sheet have this unique connection with each other. And for nearly 50 years, the geoscience community has tried to find the answer of whether or not the West Antarctic ice sheet collapsed during the last interglacial period around 125,000 years ago. And we knew that biology could be used to answer this question. So we decided to look into the DNA of this Tiket octopus from Antarctica. Well, just generally, why is it so challenging to study the history of this area? Going to Antarctica is really logistically challenging and expensive and it is very hard to get any samples from Antarctica from, for biology and geology. So right now there are existing geological evidence from Antarctica that indicates the West Antarctic ice sheet might have retreated sometime in the last one million years, but the timing extent of it is really 
blurry from the signatures of these existing geological evidence. So we turned to the DNA of this small octopus to look for better clarity of the evidence. Well, tell me about the octopus. Why was it chosen for the project? Yeah, so this octopus we study is called the Turquette octopus. So it's fairly small. It, an individual just weighs up to 600 grams. And it lives on the seafloor all around Antarctica, from shallow water down to a thousand meters. It crawls on the seafloor, which is perfect for understanding biological connections around Antarctica and also the questions of whether or not the West Antarctic ice sheet collapsed in the past. And how can it then be an indicator of what's happening to the ice? So we first compare the DNA profiles of modern-day Turquette octopus uh, all around Antarctica to look for biological connections. We found distinct connections between the octopuses on the opposite sides of the West Antarctic ice sheet, but they are now separated from each other by the ice sheet itself. So we use statistical models to distinguish different scenarios of whether the West Antarctic ice sheet collapsed or not in the past. So from this, we found direct connections across the West Antarctic ice sheet that could not be statistically explained by the octopuses interbreeding around the coastline of Antarctica. So the only way this direct connection could have happened was that the ice sheet had collapsed before, which would lead to seaways directly connecting um, these octopuses on the opposite sides of West Antarctica and allow them to directly exchange genetic material with each other. And finally, we use molecular dating to date these historical connections across West Antarctic ice sheet. Okay, so let me see if I got that right. You, you looked at the DNA of the, this octopus to see whether or not they interbred with each other over different areas. Mm-hmm. And you're saying that if there was ice there, they were isolated, so they couldn't interbreed. Exactly. Okay. So when you found that during the periods when they did interbreed, that means there was no ice. So what, what time period did you come up with for that? Yeah, so we used molecular dating to date these historical connections across Western Antarctic ice sheet. And we found that in the octopus DNA, this connection was first detected around 3 to 3.5 million years ago, which is during the mid-Pliocene warm period. And this supports existing geological evidence that Western Antarctic ice sheet collapsed during the mid-Pliocene warm period. But we also last detected these connections across Western Antarctica around the last interglacial period, so around 125,000 years ago. So this suggests that West Antarctic ice sheets likely also collapsed during that time. And this was the last time the planet was around 1.5 degrees warmer than pre-industrial levels. So we're talking about the West Antarctic ice sheet here. So how much of Antarctica's total ice does that represent? So West Antarctic ice sheet is a special topic in terms of global sea level rise because it it lies um, under sea level. So it's a marine-based ice sheet and it's very sensitive to warming and it holds enough water to raise global sea level by three to five metres. Wow. What do we know about what else was happening on Earth at the time to cause this collapse? Actually, in our study, because we found that West Antarctic ice sheets collapsed um, during the last interglacial when the Earth's temperature was only 0.5 to 1.5 degrees higher than the pre-industrial level, but sea level was also 5 to 10 metres, even higher than today. So we are opening perspective for other people to look into 
what else was triggering the Western Antarctic ice sheet collapse during that time, um, during the last interglacial, and whether temperature was the um, sole factor or whether there was other factors that previously we didn't consider um, in driving that ice sheet loss. Well, based on what you found, what does that tell you about the future of the Antarctic ice sheet as we watch giant icebergs <laughs> float off Antarctica out into the, uh, into the oceans? Yeah, so by understanding that Western Antarctic ice sheet collapsed during the last interglacial, the last time the planet was around 1.5 degrees warmer than pre-industrial levels, we provide evidence that the tipping point of losing Western Antarctic ice sheet right now is close. And our findings helped model to better predict and project how Antarctica would change under different climate scenarios and how much time we have left in terms of stopping this irreversible loss of the West Antarctic ice sheet. So it could be stopped, potentially. We could stop the collapse of the uh, Antarctic ice sheet, but if we don't, we're going to deal with some pretty serious sea level rise here. Indeed. We are close to that level right now, but there are still limited time for us to stop our global warming from hitting 1.5 degrees Celsius. Dr. Lau, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Dr. Sally Lau is a postdoctoral research fellow at James Cook University in Australia. The world is scrambling to build up renewable and green energy production and infrastructure quickly in order to reduce our use of fossil fuels. It's a titanic job. We've spent the better part of 200 years building an industrial and domestic economy that's absolutely dependent on those fuels. And we are developing substitutes that are helping wind, solar, hydroelectricity, nuclear, and to a much smaller extent, things like geothermal and tidal power. But we need more, much more. Well, there's a potential new source of energy that's just beginning to be talked about. It could be clean and plentiful. The question is, is it real? Quirk's producer Jim Levins has been looking into the potential of geologic hydrogen. Hi, Jim. How are you now? Uh, good and you? Uh, not so bad. So let's get right to it. What is geologic hydrogen? Well, you know what hydrogen gas is. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a molecule made from two hydrogen atoms. It's lighter than air, and it's famously extremely flammable. They passed notice of the ship, but just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... It burst into flames. Get it started. Get it started. It's fighting, and it's rising. It's rising terrible. All the humanity and all the fans are just speeding around. You can't talk about hydrogen without bringing up the Hindenburg. That, that airship really gave hydrogen a bad name. That's right. And it's unfair because hydrogen is actually wonderful stuff. It's a potentially useful fuel for the green economy because you can burn it just like natural gas or propane, or you can generate electricity with it using a fuel cell. And when you do that, it produces no carbon dioxide as a byproduct. So it's been touted as a transportation fuel for airplanes and ground vehicles, and maybe a way to store and transport electrical energy produced by solar or wind power. And it's also useful for some of the other things that oil is good for, like as a feedstock for fertilizer and chemicals. But I hear a big but coming up here. I know there is a problem with hydrogen. Yeah. And the big problem is that historically, hydrogen is not actually a clean fuel because we've had to make it. And today, mostly it's made from fossil fuels. 
So they're hydrocarbons after all, hydrogen combined with carbon. And industry extracts hydrogen from the hydrocarbon, leaving carbon dioxide as a byproduct. And that's mostly just been released into the atmosphere, um, creating global warming. Uh, though there are plans to try and capture it and bury the carbon dioxide. But can't you also make hydrogen using electricity and water like I did in high school? Yeah, sure. You take water, H2O, hydrogen and oxygen, use electrical energy to crack it into, into its two component parts. And this has been seen as a way to take renewable energy from solar or wind uh, to make a fuel that could be stored or transported long distances. I've heard a lot about that. Yeah, Canada's actually made some significant bets on the technology. There are proposals to use hydroelectric power in Quebec and wind power on the East Coast to make hydrogen and sell in Europe. Okay, that's making hydrogen, but you still haven't explained what geologic hydrogen is. Well, it's different from all that because, as you just said, we don't have to make it. Geologic hydrogen is hydrogen that's produced by geological processes, trapped underground like a fossil fuel, but it's not made from fossils. It could be clean and green and potentially available in vast quantities. Vast quantities? How vast? Potentially world-changing quantities. Wow. One of the people I spoke to uh, about this is uh, Dr. Barbara Sheward Lawler, who's a geochemist from the University of Toronto, and you've talked to her before. So yes, here she is. Times. It's quite clear that it's something that within the past year has really exploded in at least the number of stories in the media. It has exploded in the number of startup companies. It has exploded in terms of its investment, and it's exploded in terms of its investigation of potential, I'd say. The key thing is, is that in some of these systems, there really is a lot of this material available. So even if only a small fraction of it can be used, it could nonetheless be one of the important things that we can do to deal with the climate crisis. Well, that's exciting. But again, how much are we actually talking about here? Well, most people got an idea of how much when a petroleum geologist for the U.S. Geological Survey named Jeff Ellis presented research on the topic at a conference in 2022. Here's Dr. Ellis. I've done some model calculations with a colleague of mine at the USGS on this question about what, what could the resource potential actually be. And it's a very large range of numbers, anywhere from maybe just thousands of, of, of megatons, of million metric tons of hydrogen, um, up to maybe tens of billions of megatons. And we've kind of tried to focus in on, on the mean value, which is around the order of maybe tens of millions of megatons of, of natural hydrogen. But what's really important to understand is that given what we know about petroleum fluids and, and other fluids in the subsurface, that it's very likely that most of this is going to be inaccessible, that, that it's simply going to be far too deep or too far offshore or in accumulations that are just much too small, that it would never be economic to actually produce. But even in light of that, if we could maybe only find and produce maybe 1% of that 10 million megatons, that would still represent uh, 100,000 megatons, which would supply all of the projected demand for hydrogen resources for hundreds of years. Wow. 100,000 megatons? Yeah. And just for perspective, we make only about 90 megatons of hydrogen globally right now, which is like just a thousandth as much. But again, these are models, remember. We haven't actually found that much hydrogen. It, there's just scientifically defensible reasons to think it might be there. There's a lot we don't know here. But even so, I'm kind of stunned that we're only learning about this now. I mean, how could the possibility of millions of megatons of underground hydrogen be news? 
that's actually an important part of the story. It's kind of fascinating, actually. Let's go back about 40 years or so. Here's Barbara Sherwood Lawler again. Well, I, I mean, I was probably amongst one of uh, maybe a handful of people who discovered it more or less in the 1980s. As a Canadian or a scientist, I was fortunate enough to be working in the rocks of the Canadian Shield. But not only the rocks of the Canadian Shield, but rocks of similar age and similar mineralogy that are found all over the world, in Finland, in Sweden, in Southern Africa. And as we worked there and began to look at the kinds of gases that are associated with deep rocks and deep waters in those systems, you could not get away from discovering that, in fact, hydrogen was a major component of those rocks. And part of that, that hadn't really been understood. Okay. Now, I understand things like coal, oil, and natural gas come from buried organic matter, things like plants, algae, and stuff. That's why they're called fossil fuels. But where does this geologic hydrogen come from? Well, it's, again, not a fossil fuel. You might call it a geological fuel. It's produced, Dr. Sherwood Lawler says, by natural geochemical processes. Hydrogen is produced by a variety of things. It's produced by life, it's produced by volcanoes, but in rocks, it's produced by two major types of chemical reactions. Uh, one of them is very familiar to Canadians, whether they know it or not. Uh, Canadians are familiar with soapstone, which is geological name is serpentine. And when that rock forms, when you get what's called hydration of certain rocks, in the Earth's crust, in particular ones that contain iron and magnesium, when water interacts with those rocks, it forms soapstone or serpentine in a process called serpentinization. And as a byproduct of that, hydrogen is produced. The second major category of reactions is even more both mundane and exciting. Uh, it's actually mundane because it happens everywhere. All rocks contain radioactive elements. All rocks naturally contain uranium, thorium, and then also potassium. And when those rocks decay, hydrogen is produced as a byproduct of that reaction as well in a process that's referred to as, as radiolysis, which sounds a lot fancier than it is. It just means that the radioactive energy produced by those elements breaks apart the water molecule. And when you break a water molecule apart, you get hydrogen again as a byproduct. Okay, but that just makes me wonder even more. I mean, if the Earth is producing all this hydrogen, why didn't we know about it and, and think of exploiting it before now? That's a slightly complicated question, but a big part of it was that nobody cared. <laughs> really? Yeah, Jeff Ellis from the U.S. Geological Survey spent 30 years working in petroleum geology before he became interested in hydrogen. He says industry was busy poking holes in the ground looking for oil and natural gas and had no real interest in anything else. There wasn't a market for hydrogen. So if 20 years ago, if you drilled a well and you found a bunch of hydrogen, you really couldn't sell it to anybody. No one was interested. And so we're finding out now that there were many cases of companies drilling wells and finding hydrogen and considering it a dry hole and, and not of economic value and walking away from it. But buried in company reports now, we're finding, oh, yeah, look, they found hydrogen in, in all these various places. And the lack of market was probably just one part of it. Critically, one of the widely used instruments designed to analyze gases coming out of wells was actually blind to hydrogen as well. So it was often basically invisible. Whoops. <laughs> yeah. And another issue is that for the most part, places where oil and gas occur, which are sedimentary rocks, mostly a couple of hundred million years old, 
are not where hydrogen would be produced in larger volumes. That would happen typically in older and deeper rocks. So when it comes down to it, we weren't looking for it in the wrong places. Jim, sometimes I think you like wordplay more than science. But some <laughs> days you can have both. <laughs> okay. Anyway, one more issue, and this is a significant one, is that geologists mostly thought that when hydrogen was produced underground, it just sort of fizzled away. Um, some of it would be eaten by microbes, but most, it was thought, just seeped through the rocks and escaped. I mean, hydrogen is a slippery molecule. It's the smallest molecule in the universe. And it wasn't obvious that it could be trapped underground. It was thought that maybe it would just leak through the rock into the atmosphere and disappear. Well, I know that that's a problem with hydrogen storage. When we try to keep it in tanks, it just leaks out. Yeah. Uh, um, but the point is, actually, we have started to find some trapped deposits of hydrogen. So that means that you can get geological conditions that seal in hydrogen deposits, sort of the way natural gas can be sealed underground. So now the question is, can we find out what kind of geological formations allow hydrogen to be trapped so we know where we might want to drill for it? Here's Jeff Ellis again. Really, it comes down to this question of, you know, what are the processes that lead to accumulations? Right now, we have one example in West Africa in this village of Burake Bugu in, in Mali, where we had this discovery of an accumulation of hydrogen, and that has really catalyzed interest in, in trying to understand if there are other accumulations elsewhere. But, um, you know, at this point, we don't have any other examples to, to point to. And so we need to work on developing the geologic models to try and understand what are the processes that would lead to the generation, migration, trapping, and so forth that could lead to an accumulation that we could, uh, could then uh, produce. And in fact, um, we have known accumulations of helium gases in the subsurface that have been in place for more than 100 million years. And so it seems quite reasonable that we could also trap hydrogen for comparable time periods. So nevertheless, people are prospecting for hydrogen in the US, in Australia, in Europe. And I mean, we could be at the beginnings of a hydrogen rush. Well, so how far are we from understanding where we might want to look for the accumulation of hydrogen? We're some distance, but again, there's enormous, if recent, interest in this. And there is some geological expertise, just not necessarily in the people who traditionally drill for energy in the oil and gas community, because this isn't their home territory. It is, however, the home territory of some other geologists. We already talked to Barbara Sherwood-Lawler about her work. She's done a lot of work on water circulation in very old, very deep rocks. And if you've been paying attention, that should be significant to you. Right, because water in old rocks is where this geologic hydrogen is supposed to be produced. You got it. So here's Dr. Sherwood Lawler again. From our point of view, having spent decades working on these in the, um, the shield rocks of our planet, for Canadians, and it's always great to be talking to a Canadian audience because they immediately know what the Canadian shield is. And it turns out that these are big factories for producing hydrogen. Now, they produce hydrogen throughout the rock, and the rock is very thick. And so you have these vast expanses and volumes of rock that produce hydrogen. But the question is, how deep do you have to go to get it? And so one of the fascinating things that we're finding is that, in fact, the sedimentary basins that overlie the crystalline rock of the Canadian Shield and elsewhere throughout the world, that same kind of system where you have younger sedimentary rock overlying crystalline source rock 
those sedimentary rocks can form these accumulated cap rocks. Uh, Jim? Yes, Bob? Sedimentary rock overlaying old shield rock? That's right. So does that mean we might be looking at the great southern Ontario hydrogen rush of 2024? Well, let's say 2026 or 2028, but, you know, maybe. (laughs) I moved to BC too early. Could be, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let me give you a basket full of questions we don't really have answers to so far. First, as we've explored, we think, but we don't really know, if geologic hydrogen exists in commercially viable and accessible deposits. Second, if it's there, we have no experience at all getting at it. So that's a lot of geology and exploration that needs to happen. Um, But beyond that, To take advantage of our hypothetical large-scale hydrogen extraction operations, we'd need to do a huge amount of work building a hydrogen infrastructure, analogous to the oil and gas infrastructure that we've built over the last century and a half. So that's like pipelines and tankers and storage facilities and distribution. And that won't be easy because hydrogen is actually much more difficult to handle than gasoline or natural gas. It, It leaks. It's hard to compress and liquefy. It chemically reacts to the metals, the of the containers that you're trying to keep it in and makes them brittle. And of course, we know what happens when you get it wrong. Don't do it. It bursts under flesh. Get it started. Get it started. It's right. And it's rising. It's rising. Terrible. All the humanity and all the fairness. You did it. Now, to be fair, I have to say many authorities don't think hydrogen is inherently any more dangerous to use as a fuel than natural gas or gasoline. So while there are a lot of unknowns here, safety isn't actually the biggest concern. So this sounds like it could be very important. It's a new source of energy that could help solve the climate crisis. But I have to say I'm a bit skeptical. This seems to have come out of nowhere and it sounds almost too good to be true. And hydrogen has historically been a bit vulnerable to futurist hype. Um, We've been talking about it on the show for, you know, 20, 25 years, Mm -hmm. as long as you and I have been here. So I know exactly what this means about seeming too good to be true. So for the last word, let's go back to Dr. Barbara Sherwood-Lawler. I'd say the key thing is to be extremely careful at this point in time to ensure that where we go is very much founded on rigorous science and rigorous verification. I love the idea that people are getting excited about it, interested in it, that the science is being really probed at a at an extraordinary, exciting level by groups all over the world. This is all to the good. But uh, as with anything else, um, no single thing is going to be a silver bullet in the midst of the crisis we're up against. And uh, a huge part of any of these alternatives is going to require us also remembering that at this moment in time, we continue to increase emissions. And that has to be dealt with at a global scale. Well, that's an important reality check. Even if this turns out to have potential, it's not enough. Every little bit helps, and there's still a lot of work to do. That's the message here. Thanks very much, Jim. Thank you, Bob. Jim Lebens is the senior producer of Quirks and Quarks. And that's it for Quirks and Quarks this week. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is quirks at cbc.ca. Or just go to the contact link on our webpage at cbc.ca slash quirks, where you can read my latest blog or listen to our audio archives. You can also follow our podcast or get us on the CBC Listen app. It's free from the App Store or Google Play. Quirks and Quarks was produced by Rosie Fernandez, Amanda Buckowitz, and Sonia Biting. Our senior producer is Jim Lebens. I'm Bob McDonald. Thanks for listening. 
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.